Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of the GeoMob Podcast. Today, it is my good fortune to be speaking with Alex Rothesley, who has the fantastic title of Head of Geovation. Alex, welcome to the show. What is Geovation? Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. So Geovation is a startup accelerator and incubator and community space for geospatial professionals in London. We've been going in this current format for about five years, running a, um, an innovation space. And our goal is to help location data startups launch and grow. It's, a, it's an initiative that was led by Great Britain's National Mapping Agency, Ordnance Survey. Uh, and more recently, we've had sponsorship and support from other government and private organizations, including the Land Registry in England and Wales and the Registers of Scotland in Edinburgh, and people like IBM and uh, DSTL, which is part of the Defense Ministry. So a really broad coalition of people supporting the initiative. Yeah, well, and one of the events that you generously host at your facility in London is Geomop London. So it's great to have you on and also so Absolutely. that I can publicly say thank you for having us so many times. It's just it's been excellent. And actually it, it, for- It's great for us too. Well, actually, our next event will be in mid-March, March 18th. So we really appreciate it. Let's go into some details then. Tell us a bit about what exactly what you guys do. How does the accelerator work? Yeah, so, so basically what we're looking for is companies that can that are doing interesting stuff with location data. So it's the headline principles behind setting it up was, as a national mapping agency, ordnance survey, it needs to understand what the emerging marketplace for location data products and services is both to inform our own existing products, but also where we go in the future. The role of a, of a national mapping agency is changing. And you know, we know the, the location services market is exploding at the moment. And being, it's involving different industries and different sort of sets of, of specialisms that weren't traditionally core geospatial, particularly in terms of the software market. So for us, a chance to collaborate openly with new businesses to help them achieve their success, but learning at the same time has been a really, really good way of doing things. And in, in, in practical terms, that means you know giving small companies, brand new companies, the resources, support, and things they need to grow. So, what size are these companies? It's kind of at the idea stage, or they already have some customers, or what's your kind of sweet spot? So, the sweet spot for applications, and I say we do an application call um, twice a year, um, and we are absolutely looking for really early stage businesses. So, we found that the place we can add the most value is taking people. It's probably, uh, I'm always cautious to say idea stage, because idea stage suggests you haven't done any work yet. <laughs> we, we do expect people to have done something to, to, to take that idea and to have tested it in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, it's not good enough to apply saying, I've got a great idea. Can I have some money and time, please? But I've had a great idea. I've spoken to some customers. I've talked to some friends. I spent the last few you know, months, evenings, and weekends thinking about it. I've written up some notes. I might have made a landing page. You know, I've done some stuff to kind of tease out on my own you know, as much as I can about where this goes and how it might work. You might have made a prototype or an initial demo or something. You might have done some clickable wireframes. But we wouldn't necessarily expect you to have gone into a full product most companies we take are pre-revenue and pre-investment. So we take them from that point and then we have what's a little bit more of a venture studio model than a traditional accelerator in that we have a, a multidisciplinary team. We have 15 staff, including seven software engineers. So we really get deep in helping people design that early proposition and create some testable prototypes they can take to customers. So it's that first process from 
the great idea and that validation phase through to the first customer, the first revenue, and potentially the first investment round. And how long are they then with you? What, how long does the program run? You say two a year, so is it kind of six-month batches? or? Yeah, so we take, we take them on a six-month intake, but then you get a year's, a year's of direct support from us. So six months, we say like intensive support where – your, that cohort is the priority for our team. We do, that's when we do all the workshop stuff. So we do everything from the really boring nuts and bolts of company formation, company directorship, accounting, finance, legal stuff. But we that's, also do yeah, really, really, really good stuff, which is quite unique around um, founder development. And I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. My background is entrepreneurial. And the founder journey, I think, is something that lots of accelerators don't necessarily provide as much support as they could. So we do a lot of leadership development, presentation training and i think we uniquely we do coaching practice so each each founder gets at least six hours of coaching practice through the, through the first six months to help them you know, understand what this journey means of being a company founder so if you start doing it for the first time or coming in from a corporate environment it's a very very different world to be in and it puts different kind of stresses on you from a personal level and a professional point yeah a lot of people really struggle with that transition i've found either either they're very young and they've they don't really have a working background, so so it's probably very useful. Or absolutely, people who come from a big company, it's a big transition to move all of a sudden to a startup where you have to do everything. You have to create the yeah. momentum. Yeah, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. So that first six months, we give them a really kind of big, a lot of support, a lot of real world focus. We then do we call a showcase. We don't call it a demo day per se because it's not necessarily an investment call, but sometimes they're raising, sometimes they're not, and then. But we, we, we take a snapshot of where they've got to their first six months. And then we give them six months, we sort of go to market support where we help them engage with those first customers, help them potentially do that first investment round. We do some, some business development stuff with them. We might introduce them to corporates that we think might be interested or government departments that might benefit from their services. So they get sort of six months of a more of a low burn kind of market support. And that kind of overlaps with the next cohort coming in. There's always kind of a group of companies in the intensive phase and a group of companies in the go-to-market phase. Gotcha. And we found that works quite well for us to get in the maximum amount of, of, of the team resources we have available to us. And you're also giving them some funding, that some actual money. Is it the same for every company or is there a fixed amount or how does that work? Yeah. So um, each company that gets on the program, and so we take in total now 20 a year, 12 in London and 8 in Edinburgh. And they get up to £20,000 grant funding. We give grant funding and it is doled out in, in a sort of three-month chunk. So it's not all up front in cash. The idea behind this was that we would, and, and the real motivation for giving a grant was to ensure equity of access. As a government-backed initiative, entrepreneurship can often be the preserve of those that obviously easy for lots of people to take six months out and start a business. Not everyone has the resources or they're in the middle of their career. They've got mortgages or bills to pay or kids to raise. Lots of great ideas go to the wall because you can't just find that time focus. So the grant is literally a, a subsidy, if you like, for a period of time that lets people focus on their idea at least you know three to six months which gives them that, that window hopefully to to work out whether it's really worth pursuing or not so we do that we we don't take equity by default on the program our, our view is that we will provide a level of support that we do for the program with no equity take what we do have a model of if someone and particularly for non-technical founders if they, if they get to a point where they want to build something and they need to actually engage a, a technical resource 
We found this gap where if you didn't have a technical a CTO who could do it themselves, small companies were being really heavily diluted going to bring on a technical co-founder or going out to a contractor and saying, can you build this for me? And it was a very either cash-intensive or equity-intensive yeah, process. Sure. So, so what we found was a model was for those companies, we if, if we believe in their business and they've gone through the, the value proposition exercises with us and we feel really confident they're onto something, we will second in our developer team to their business for a period of time in exchange for some share options. So we'll do that probably, I'd say, typically for about 20% of the companies that come through us, we'll do that with. So it's, it's the exception rather than the rule. But it has worked very well for some of the companies we've worked with because it provides that relatively low, low cost and low risk way for them to get to that first customer prototype. Often that work will be thrown away in a year's time. It literally is. So what do you need to get done right now to get some cash in the bank, to demonstrate customers want to buy the thing. It's not designed to be your long-term technology platform. But, you know, if we can do, you know, 400 hours of dev work, you know, to kind of get that first thing up there, you know, three months of work, four months of work to try and get something in the market, it, it can be really transformative for some of the businesses we work with. I can imagine. And I know we've had the pleasure of having many of your startups present at GeoMob, and I know they all speak very highly of the program. So you've been doing it now for five years. How many people are typically applying in each cohort? What are the, what are the chances of getting in? <laughs> okay, so it's, we are looking uh, in London for, say, for six and in Scotland for four each time. It really varies. It's, it's between 100 and 200 are applying for those six places. So it's pretty competitive. Wow. Um, yeah, given that obviously we're already in a niche. But, I, but yeah, but, but I would encourage people to say that actually, like any um, open application process, there's a, a distribution curve of, of, of quality, a focus of you know, people who've read, read the exam questions, those that haven't. So I think the real thing I would encourage people to do is to not get hung up on, on the odds. Uh, there's, there's two things we'd say. First of all, we've got some really clear things we're looking for. I'll show you in a second because, you know, just being in the right stage, the right focus with the right sort of key things, head automatically puts you in a better place for that process. The other thing is one of timing, right? We have had, I think, at least three, four businesses that have applied multiple times and got through on their second or third attempt because they're at a better place. They reached that point where we felt more confident to get that value. So not getting on the program is often no reflection of your business. It's more a reflection of fit with us and where we are right now. The other thing is we don't currently, we, we don't operate like a venture studio, right? We don't just pay quick win. And we've had a big debate internally uh, as to, we currently in our model, we believe that we're here to, to add value and to, and to the maximum impact we can make. So if someone comes to us and they've already, they might be really early stage, but they've got you know, fantastic access to capital. They've got a really good kind of corporate experience. They, 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 we look at them, we go, they've got these, this team, they're going to go, they're going to do it anyway. You know, whether or not we, we support them, they're going to be fine. And we've seen this a number of times. We'll often not invite them into the program, not because it's a great company, because we can't add much value to them. And we'd rather uh, allocate these, these sort of limited resources to the ones that would really struggle or would need much more help to get to that point because it's trying to realize there's, there's unrealized benefits rather than the ones that will, will, will happen regardless. It's been interesting, obviously, because if we did go for more, you know, I said, the ones that are more guaranteed wins, probably, you know, up our stats a bit. But from our point of view, that's kind of, you know, that question of what's the maximum impact we can make with our resources and our limited resources is always what we look for. So in terms of actually the, the key criteria, we always say there's there's three things we look for. Clarity of, of the business plan. You know, do, do they know who they're selling to, what they're building, and why they want to build them. Do they understand what the customer's problem is? And they have a, a real focus on that. Are they credible? Are these are these people who we believe can deliver this plan? 
Um, or do they know how to find people who can? I'm not looking to anyone to be an expert, but we'd want them to say, I'm not an expert in machine learning, but I know this, this you know, doctorate student at UCL who is going to work for me part-time to do it. Great. The third thing is, and it's the most important, which is coachability. If, do you want the support of a diverse and, and talented team to support you on this journey? Are you willing to you know, embrace the process if you're kind of the attitude of curiosity? Do you want to understand what's possible? If you don't, that's fine, but it's probably not the right place for you to be. I mean, I've known some extremely you know, bullheaded founders who are very successful who listen to nobody about anything. <laughs> and they've done really well for themselves. They know precisely where they're going and what they're doing and how they're going to get there. And I say, good luck to you. You may well succeed. Crack on. As an accelerator environment, we're very much looking for a collaborative process where we can add value and that coachability, that willingness to kind of work together is critical for us. I think that's one thing many entrepreneurs overlook is that for the investor, in your case, or the, the, the accelerator, it's all about also finding the people who are a good match to you not just the people mm. who are, are good in general. But, yeah, yeah. but uh, of those three categories in general, what are the biggest mistakes that you see or areas that lead you to reject applications? What is the one that people are kind of missing, lacking the most? That's a good one. The one that always surprises me, and it shouldn't because I've made this mistake myself in the past, and, and the reason I think I quite enjoy doing this is that I have been on both sides of the table here. I've, I've run businesses as well, and I've run businesses badly, frankly, in the past, and I've hopefully learned some of, some of those mistakes. Not talking to customers. I mean, the, the complete obsession with product above actually talking to the customers they want to sell to. Now, it happens remarkably often. People come and say, I'm, I'm building this amazing thing. It's the best thing in the world ever. You know, it does this fantastic thing. You're like, brilliant. Have you spoken to anyone who's going to buy it? No, no, we're still working on it. When it's ready, we'll take it back to them and they'll buy it. Like, we just don't see that. Okay. You know, ultimately, it, it, it's about, if you are wanting to start a company, so it's a company, it's about business, it's about a value exchange between you and other people. And you do see it quite a lot of people get, get lost in their technology or their product. And we also say just talk to customers, have those customers early because, you know, that's going to make a massive difference where you go. This leads to a good point, Ox, because, you know, a lot of people I know think, maybe people who aren't as deeply involved in the tech space, they think it's kind of all about just having the aha moment and coming up with some amazing innovation and then building the better mousetrap, right? But then you have people on the other side who are saying, oh, the idea doesn't matter at all. It just matters. You know, it's all about execution and having a good team of complementary people who execute well and they will find, find a business. How do you see that? How do you see that also particularly in the, the geo prop tech space? Certainly from a startup's point of view, it's, it, I mean, there are absolutely, you know, if you're looking at sort of the, the, the heavy duty levels of sort of corporate innovation, particularly in the in, in sort of the, the industries, for example, like something like defense or pharmaceuticals, there's kind of long, long R&D cycles to build things that are, except, are exceptionally you know, unique and innovative for technical reasons. In the digital marketplace, I mean, I started off doing entrepreneurial activities in 1998, around then, and I remember the first dot-com time around. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a very different environment, you know, that, that you could be the first person to come up with eBay. The barriers to entry to launching new things were really high, and that created a sort of a moat around opportunity. The barrier to entry to start a new business today is is next to nothing. Yeah, I, I'm always astonished at how quickly, and we've done some experiments, and personally, I've sort of tried to work on one weekend. Could I put something up in a weekend that would look like a viable business? And you can. You can do a landing page, you can do a MailChimp call-up, you can get a 
for a product prototype built in Sketch. You, if you want to do something more technical, you, there is huge sort of cloud-based infrastructure now that lets you spin up a service on scalable infrastructure that if it starts to pick up traction, and there's no sunk costs up front. So the barrier to entry is next to zero. So in that environment, it is about execution. It's ultimately about, you know, can you deliver a service that people want to buy? And I think there are the exceptions. There are the people who come up with something, and they usually these days come out of something in the academic sector or, or the deep sort it's called the, the deep tech area, which is sort of the holy grail for lots of VCs these days. They all want to be in deep tech <laughs> because deep tech sounds really exciting. It's very rare. It's very rare we see that. And even if you've got something amazing, um, I've seen some brilliant technologies go nowhere because the founding team just believed they didn't need to sell them. They would just sell themselves. And I've never seen a product sell itself, really. Yeah, it's a, a common mistake technical people fall into, is, you know. But anyway, let's get into some specific. I know you love all your children equally, but highlight a few uh, startups that have gone through the program that stand out for you that are doing particularly well. Yeah, sure. They, they're really broad. The nice thing about location data and prop tech is it gives us, it, they're kind of almost horizontal markets. So you see people in lots of different verticals. In terms of sort of on a purely success level, it's a company called Land Tech that's been doing really well in terms of the land and property space. They're oh, yeah. I, I saw they uh, growing really fast. They just raised a big round, didn't they? Yeah, they just did a round with, J, with JLL Spark, which is uh, James Langer Sales Investment Group. And actually, the same week last week, another one of our, our alumni, a company called uh, Shippermax, I think uh, Jen is speaking at the next GeoMob, has, has just raised a $7 million round from Mosaic and Crane Ventures. An amazing business, Shippermax. And, and what's interesting about both those founders is, and I was talking and others, I'll talk about in a second, but it's relentless focus on that customer experience. So I remember when we first had Jenna and her partner Fabian in, in, in Geovation, I'll be honest, they didn't need a huge amount of the, they were quite, they were very focused, quite experienced in their own careers. But working with them, you saw their approach. It was their very early prototypes. They'd stick them in front of a, a customer. I remember hearing Jenna on the phone with a customer and just asking the questions, well, why did you do that? And why did you push that button? And what's that? You weren't on the software today. Why are you on the software today? And just curious about the things they want to do in their work and yeah. how their product might support them in doing so. And actually, I was reading a blog post I wasn't aware until this week, but there's a blog post by one of their new investors talking about how they shifted their business model around to sort of the automation of supply chain in the global shipping industry they work with them. It's a classic case of following their, their market and the opportunity and understanding where that you know, the fabled you know, product market fit is between the things you're building. And you only get that by listening to customers. Um, similarly with Johnny and, and Andrew and Land Insight, you know, they had this site finding service initially, you know, use our software to find props to build on, really for basic. And what they realized was actually a big challenge around that for a property developer was managing the pipeline of opportunities, managing the conversations, the data. So a big part of that functionality, I moved into almost like a Trello service, like a workboard for bringing property development through a process. And they then brought different things into it. Another company we worked with on the prop tech side is called Third Fort. They are looking at the conveyancing process and looking at how money transfers happen in the property market. And again, the founders there are really polished, you know, really successful young people like Jack and Ollie. And I, when I first met them, I thought they were going to be quite, quite determined that they had the right answer. to behave very well. We know what we're doing. And I remember Ollie coming and saying, I've just been up to Scotland. I've been to, I think it was Falkirk, to the mortgage lending center of like Halifax Bank of Scotland or Royal Bank of Scotland, one of the two big banks. 
And he'd gotten, and as an entrepreneur, you know, he'd got on a train, he'd gone and sat down, he'd gone out to this market center where they had several thousand people working in a call center. There were some thousands of faxes a day from conveyance solicitors, and they were getting tens of thousands of phone calls chasing the faxes that had been sent. And Ollie went and spent a full day there with the people doing the work to understand the pain points of that process, and that fed into their product. They all had this great, you know, what do, I, what do our customers need to make their life better? And it does sound trivial, but it works. If you do that and you really listen to your customers and you really pursue services or products that, that improve their, their work, their patterns, that solve problems for them, they're not buying your product. But you know, pushing the thing you think is brilliant at them rarely works. So those guys and girls are ones that we're really, really proud of. Uh, there's also lots that have not been quite so sort of financially successful, haven't raised big rounds, but are equally really high impact and really impressive. I have to give a, a shout out to uh, Hannah and Steve and the GoJoint team. Um, beautiful bit of, uh, of work in creating a, uh, an app on the App Store. If you haven't got it, GoJointly, it's a, it's a walking app that lets you explore. Really nice sort of, kind yeah, of Instagram very, walking tour. Very cool. She presented at Geomob, uh, I think, about 18 months ago or so. Yeah. And it's just beautifully designed. It's a lovely service. They've got a good, healthy number of growing active users. And what I love is their social mission. They're there to get people feeling better about themselves and their world by improving their mental health throughout their activity, which is really in line with our coordinate survey or get outside campaign. Our OS apps products, the same thing is about aligning people to experience the outdoors and get out to to improve their mental health and their physical wellness. And probably the last one to give a shout out, we've had 110 businesses through, so I can't talk about them all, but one of our very first cohorts, a company called The Land App. I don't know if you've met Tim Hopkins. No, I don't think Glenn. so. What, what so they, they were on our very first group, and they, Tim was a, from a farming family in Surrey, and he was quite depressed when I think it was his grandfather said, you don't want to get in the farming business, there's no, there's no future in it. It's really hard to manage a small farm these days. And he was like, that's depressing. I love, I love my, the land we have. I love this location. What can we do with it? And he realized that there was, there was a real dearth of tools that let him as a small landowning farmer manage the multitude of different things you can do with your land, whether that's environmental stewardship schemes, whether it's just plotting how you want to reuse your land, whether it's completing your forms for the subsidy programs and things, which are hugely complex and time-consuming and still paper-based in many ways. So he said, I can't believe that's possible. They came onto our program and we supported him building his very first prototype, which would let you effectively create a digital picture of your, your land. You load up your land registry titles. You can assemble a border. You can start to add features to it and draw on it. And then create almost like a, a Google Docs for your farm where you can share plans and ideas with other parts of the value chain, environmental consultants, land agents, property, property consultants, uh, and the government. And it's a really, really important part of our sort of agricultural landscape that has been uh, hugely neglected. And as we move out of the European Union, whatever your political views are on that, it, it's going to change things a lot for our rural economy, particularly when we have moved away from common agricultural policies. And what Tim has built is an extraordinary toolkit for farmers to interact with the data about their farms and with the stakeholders in there. It takes time. I mean, he's four, four and a half years in now, and he's just signed up some really big customers in, I think he's got Stratton Parker on board, one of the big sort of land agents nationally. They're using his software, getting value out of it. But it takes time. It doesn't yeah. happen overnight. Uh, and, the, and great founders have that persistence. I think the probably was kind of what was the takeaway as a founder looking at starting a business is, you know, timing is everything. You know, patience is really key. 
you know, the idea of you know starting a company and then exiting in three years on a you know massive exit is it does happen for some, but it's really really exceptional. Most startups take years, take you know a decade of your life to kind of get to a point of sustainability and growth. And you might still miss the wave because you know my my last business I started a virtual world business in two thousand and seven. I still think the vision we had was really cool and probably a valid strategic vision, but it's still now we're, you know, 15 years on, 13 years on. And, you know, you just have to decide whether you want to wait it out or whether you want to at some point say, I think I'm just in the wrong time zone for this in history. You know, I might have to press pause and try something else and see where that vision comes to, comes in, a, in another five or 10 years time. Uh, but that's, that, that requires a lot of sort of maturity and patience. I can definitely confirm what you're saying that it takes time as, as someone who had a, a real estate startup for a real estate search startup for 10 years. It's, it's a long journey and founders really do need to have endurance. Mm. So great examples, Alex, of the types of companies you've been. Yeah. You've been favorite, favorite. Yeah. When is the next batch? When should people apply? So I think unfortunately this podcast will probably go out just after we've closed our January. We do a call January, February. So I think the current call is closing on twenty. 5th of February, 24th of February, I think it might be at midnight, but we'll be doing another call in the summer. So look out for it uh, on the geovation.uk website. A, a big button that says apply now pops up twice a year in January, February, and in uh, July, usually late July, early August. And we usually give a six-week application period to give you plenty of time to get your applications in. Okay. The other thing I'd say is a member of Geovation, if you are in London, or even if you're not and you want to have access to the community stuff, we have a good active Slack channel and we have lots of resources we can sort of point you to remotely. Go on to geovation.uk, membership, sign up as a free community member. It's a great way to get connected to what we do and be, and be in the loop. If you are in, in the UK and you want to desk um, or work with a community of people, you can sign up as a startup member for free. You can use the co-worker space. You can you know, drink the coffee. We've actually got a network now of other locations around the UK as well, in Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol, and Edinburgh, where we can arrange um, access for you if you are need to hot desk in those locations as well. So it's a really amazing resource. Um, and by engaging with the community, you'll, you'll, you'll get to know what we're looking for. We can support you on that program when it's ready to go. Yeah, I, I agree completely. As someone who has been able to take advantage of your generosity in London many times, it's a great place to work and a great community, and everyone should check it out. And of course, the next time they can check it out is at a, at the next GeoMob, which will be on March 18th. Absolutely. That really, that's uh, what we're looking forward to seeing them. One final question, Alex. Any favorite GeoMob talks or moments that stand out for you? As a long time. Uh, yes, I was thinking about that when you asked, you asked me that question before, before we recorded. And I, was, I was interested in thinking about the ones I've enjoyed. There's been lots, lots of really, um, from the super technical ones and some you know, really nice personal products. But actually, I really like the offbeat ones you get in, the things that are sort of non... I see a lot of technology. I see a lot of really great entrepreneurs. What I love about GMOB sometimes is you get the, the passionate enthusiasts who have done something really cool. The one that stuck out for me was, I can't remember the, the chap's name, but it was about two or three years ago, who did an amazing talk about how he'd taken the like an open data, I think it was OS names, open service names, open data set, and he'd analyzed all the prefixes and suffixes of places uh, and then mapped them and is showing you how, and then historically you could see where different parts of the country were reflecting like past migrations, invasions, you know, trade routes. And it was just an amazing example of how data can tell stories and can provide, you know, 
you look at that list of that list of names, it would mean nothing to you. But you use the geospatial data, you analyze it, you map it, and you suddenly look at what that says, and the the stories become clear as day. You know, that's where the Vikings came in here, and gosh, that river downstream is there were people there as well. They obviously settled and married, and you can see that the map becomes, you know, a really visual representation of, of the of these these past political and economic activities. And I think that's just fascinating. And for me, that goes to the heart of why geography is 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 a kind of a passion. I mean, I'm not a geographer by education, but the the power of location data and geography to to tell stories with data and to make data real for audiences is, is why it's so powerful. I mean, that's sort of ending on a on something too too serious, but that's why the climate stuff is so important, why geographers have such a key role to play in the climate challenge, because the core skill set of a geographer and someone using geospatial data is helping people make sense of complex data in ways that they can understand, whether you're doing it for business or for or for climate analysis. And you know, it's uh, it's something that I think we just celebrate. There's this awful kind of outdated view of geographers as kind of nerdy people in their corduroy jackets. And I think if we can make you know, kids today going to school look at look at the, the power of geospatial analysis and geodata to to really change the world, I think that's something we need to try and um, support and embrace. That's a, that's a very good insight, Ox. And um, I, I agree. Yeah, that that presentation was one of many that we've had that really show make the history come to life and show how the you know the past has big influences even today so well on that note i think that was an excellent summary and i look forward to seeing you at the next geomob in uh, on the 18th of march and and i encourage anyone any of our listeners out there who are in the uk and who are thinking of starting a geo startup to get involved in the geospatial community and if it makes sense to apply it's a wonderful resource that you guys have created congratulations Thanks, guys, and great talking today, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.